0: It's like an addictive behavior yeah. to try and reduce that feeling of being really distressed and uncomfortable about something. Yeah. And I'm I'm thinking of things like agoraphobia where things like exposure therapy can actually help a lot where you you provide this patient with the stimulus or whatever that they're afraid of and they get more exposed to it, they get more exposed to it and then they find that they're actually there's nothing to be afraid of, or even if there is something to be a- afraid of, they're strong enough to handle it. Yeah. And to realize it, it's okay. You must be some kind of therapist.
1: I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Nguyen, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guests are Zach Elliott and Cynthia Brehany. They are with the Paradox Institute. Zach founded it. Cynthia is Director of Art and Communications. They both wear many hats there. The Paradox Institute presents educational material on sex differences. Uh, They also co-host the Paradox Institute podcast, which launched recently. You can find that on YouTube at Paradox Institute, on Spotify, the Paradox Institute podcast, and it sounds like a few other platforms as well. Um, Zach and Cynthia have recently released thousands of pamphlets on the myths of gender affirming care. So today, we're going to talk about what all they're up to at the Paradox Institute. Um, But first, I just want to start with something I've I've never had the chance to talk about before on this podcast, which is that, um, as many listeners are probably well aware, I'm quite active on Twitter. Many of my guests come from my connections on Twitter Zach and Cynthia are the first people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting who met through Twitter and fell in love and are now having (laughs) a baby. Um, So can we start there? Can you tell us about your love story?
0: Yeah, so uh, we were both posting on Twitter in 2020 about the sex and gender issue, which is, we can get into like how we started doing that. But um, around 2020, I was posting long threads about the sex spectrum and why it's wrong. And Cynthia started following me around that time. And then there was um, a moment where a trans activist uh, <laughs> asked me, they were like, explain hyena cock, sir. And I'm like,
2: <laughs> what? Because female hyenas have a super so penis. This and is that's some- what they were referring
0: yeah. to. They love to use examples of other species and things like that. And, of course, he said it in a really, you know, all, crass yeah, way. he's
2: very crass.
0: And so he had a picture, an avatar of a raccoon. And so Cynthia was an, is an amazing artist. So she actually sent me, like, a meme, basically, that was hand-drawn of this raccoon with its, like, arm up here and saying, Explain hyena bleep, yeah, sir. And th- <laughs> And I was like, "Wow, that's so cute. That's so funny." <laughs> and uh, I thought, "Wow, she's a she seems like a really cool like person." And I saw her profile, and it said like digital artist, animator, and an author. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, she has so many skills. That's amazing." <laughs> and um, we wound up just becoming friends. She messaged me once in a while. We started talking, and yeah, yeah.
2: made really bad jokes about eggs because of gametes.
1: Oh, the so just like what's the spectrum of what sperm
2: spag? Kind of, oh, yeah, spe-
0: sperms yeah. and spags, <laughs> but he's like,
2: mostly just like talking about how he should do like cooking videos about gametes, scrambled
0: <laughs> large like, gametes. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> <But> yeah.
2: <laughs> just, like, really corny jokes.
0: Sunny side up gametes. I figured. Gametes. I don't know.
2: I I like making friends with people on Twitter and just talking about things outside of all this nonsense.
0: Yeah, she, I noticed that and she just was checking on yeah. everybody,
2: making sure.
0: Like, yeah. Are you
2: guys okay? Are you having an all right day? Do you need to just laugh about something for a second? And that's basically what I was doing with him too.
0: She was unique in that you know most people would ask me like questions about biology, whereas she didn't come in that way. She was just wanting to be my friend and, and make me laugh, and that that went a whole that went just really far. Yeah. It, it was really. Um, <laughs> They really stuck out to me and it just made me appreciate her on that level so it was
2: also his thousand thousandth youtube subscriber, <laughs> so that's yeah, a monetization threshold <laughs> so, <laughs> she
0: sent me a message and she was, she was like in 2020 she's like i'm your 1000th subscriber i was like oh wow that's so cool and i was like in like uh, soon after she sent me the hyena uh, or the, the raccoon like drawing yeah um and then in 2021, a year later, we started dating. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: <laughs> At what point did you realize that you had romantic feelings across the internet?
0: Um, honestly, I mean, I had a crush on her ever since I saw her her picture and like her <laughs> her like art portfolio. <laughs> and then, um, but it really got really strong like after we started talking a lot, like in the next year, like in February and in March and. We would spend time uh, talking on the phone, starting like in March 2021, yeah. and then um, really started to feel that then.
2: Yeah, just through becoming friends, we just realized that like we fit pretty well together. Like yeah.
0: very similar feelings. personalities, um, mm-hmm. similar interests, um, some very similar values. So we just aligned on like every level you would you could think of. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a perfect match.
1: Yeah, What a sweet story. Right. But you were li- you were living in different states at the time. How did you yeah. bridge that gap?
0: So yeah, I was living in Oklahoma and you're living in uh, North, Carolina. North Carolina. And for me, I I wasn't really tied down to Oklahoma other than my family living there. My family's actually moving here in, in May, just in a few weeks now. But um, my, my parents and my little brother and but I, they always supported me in terms of just what I wanted to do in my life, and um, Cynthia's little siblings are here in North Carolina, so I didn't want to make them move. I just, yeah. it was easier for me to move here, and it was just more, it just made more sense for them to stay here.
1: Yeah. Before that, at what point, like, how did you first broach the idea of, I think I like you so much that I want to hop on a plane? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Will you meet me in person? <laughs> Could, well, yeah. <laughs> we just basically told each other that we liked each other over the phone and then started trying to figure out how that would work logistically and if that was feasible because he was still in school at the time.
0: Yeah, I was just about to graduate from um, university there in Oklahoma. And then in May, when I actually told her that I liked her on the phone, um, <laughs> I was so nervous. I was just, I just told her like,
2: it was just word vomit.
0: So <laughs> like, I have something to say. Like, I really, really like you. And I just kept talking and talking. And um, I was like, I was asking her, like, what are your thoughts? Or, like, what do you think? Yeah, <laughs> like, do like, you feel the same way? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was pretty sure she did. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that made me feel just amazing that that was reciprocated. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. And then I went to go see him. And um, my siblings held down the fort with all the animals. They have three rescue animals. <laughs> and so um, I went to go see him and I met his family and I was so nervous <laughs> because I come from a very like crazy family. So I didn't know what to expect. And I was just, and I grew up in a really bad area. So I was, I'm used to just like the worst type of family.
0: My family's <laughs> but- really like. Chill and welcoming, TV
2: show. (laughs) Like his family's so nice, and and they're just so like welcoming and sweet. And it was just really like culture shock for me.
0: Caught you off guard.
2: Yeah, I was like, "Is this real? Like, are they really this nice? Is there like a back room (laughs) where it's (laughs) a catch something dark?" Yeah, but no, they really are just that nice. Mm -hmm. So now his mom's like got baby fever, so she's oh yeah. She has this baby has enough clothes to last her until she's like two <laughs> at this point. Yeah. <laughs> she's already so loved. Oh, oh yes. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Whereas my family, it's mixed. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. What are their responses to the, about the baby? My
2: <laughs> grandmother's very happy, especially because it's a girl. Mm-hmm. My mom is, she's happy ish, but she, um hates girls. So she was really disappointed that I'm having a girl and still kind of is. So like literally whenever I have a, a- a sonogram appointment. She asks me to have them check to make sure it's a girl, not a boy.
1: Okay, I wasn't planning to do this at this point in the episode. <laughs> That's okay. But you said you're an open book. You also said before yeah. you started recording that you have a history of gender dysphoria. Does your mother yes. hating girls have something to do with why you developed gender dysphoria?
2: It, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, my mom has always had issues with females. I don't know why, really. I think it was because she was an atypical female and had a hard time getting along with females. And in Cuban culture, it's very sexist. And so I think that played into it too. Like she didn't like the role that was thrust upon her for being female. So that played into the resentment as well. Makes a lot of sense. Yes. And so um, when, because I had atypical interests, like I was more of a tomboy. She was always telling me that I was meant to be a boy and that I was supposed to be a boy, that my behavior was like a boy, and um things like that so um, it, oh. I didn't realize it was that big of a a factor until like I was an adult and I was processing everything because that was just life, you know like and As a kid, I also had, because of TV and things like that, and it was the 90s, I was like, oh, okay, so girls can have atypical interests and wear you know, jeans and baseball caps and play sports and stuff like that. Um, And it, it doesn't mean I'm not a girl. And even though my mom would tell me that I was meant to be a boy, she would always say, but girls can do that too. It's just, you were meant to be a boy. Like, she, to this day, will say that type of thing to me and then say that, um, I, she would always tell me too, like this thing about like, oh, you must have like testicles somewhere because you're not like <laughs> girls and things like that, or that I'm ballsy or whatever. Yeah. Like wow. it was, it was a very weird. And then the, the forced femininity from my grandmother, um, I wish I had the pictures on hand, but she, my grandmother would dress me in like a Victorian doll, like these really lacy, big poofy dresses and do my hair and curlers every single day.
0: <laughs> and, Even force her to wear jewelry and yeah. go to bed with, with jewelry on From as infancy. a baby, as a baby.
2: Yeah. Does my that? ears were Yeah. My ears were pierced. I had gold necklaces and bracelets on. And, and then my mom, on the other hand, when I would spend time with my mom, um, I got to wear jeans and t shirts and put on my roller skates and play outside and that sort of thing. So it's a really weird wow. <laughs> childhood. This is this is um,
1: intergenerational stuff. Yes. It's
2: cultural. Yeah.
1: It's influenced by your family's Cuban background, as well as the era that your grandma grew up in. Did she grow up mm-hmm. in Cuba
2: or the US? She did. She grew up in Cuba. They left when my mom was and um, and then my mom didn't really learn English until she started school. So that's another source of like feeling ostracized and weird and different compared to the other girls. because um, of course they lived in the South, they lived in Florida. So that was a big issue <laughs> was like feeling ostracized because of like race and things like that. Um, but yeah, so it is extremely, like, intergenerational. There's a lot of, like, issues that just trickle down. and But my mom said the same thing about being a boy to my sister. And my sister, her way of dealing with the issues from my family was she developed an eating disorder. She had bulimia. Um, and... Yeah, it never, she didn't develop the gender dysphoria. Um, she had the eating disorder and things like that. But my grandmother also like was really obsessive with weight and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. My grandmother and great grandmother uh, would do things like occasionally they would say they wouldn't recognize us. And they my grandmother still does that. Like they'll look at you and be like, you look different. Why do you look different? You don't look the same to me. And my sister and I both still have that issue on occasions. very rare now for me. It's still more common for her because she hasn't done therapy yet. But um, we'll look in the mirror and I won't recognize myself. And then I'll have to be like, do I look different? Do I look the same? <laughs> yeah. Is there something weird about my face or something? Because I don't feel like I recognize me. So I still have like the body dysmorphia and, and things like that, and I had my own eating disorder in my teens that I got through. But
0: so it seems like yeah. your grandmother and potentially your great grandmother also had some type of like body integrity yeah. disorder, even or 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 something like that, even that maybe maybe there was a predisposition that they passed down yeah, to you. Which I don't know, someone that- sent me
2: a study um, that was talking about intergenerational like um, face blindness. And how that can be hereditary according to some studies. So I was like, maybe that was going on I don't know, some kind of like genetic predisposition for. And
0: then you, then you add that. in the social layer of yeah. them reinforcing that onto her. And yeah. then that just inflames that predisposition.
2: Yeah. Needless to say, I'm going to be very careful <laughs> about that with my daughter and like, her time around my family. I I don't know how much time I would be okay with her being around them because they're I really don't want any of that getting into her head like it did with me and like it did with my sister. Um it did a little bit with my brother, but boys are favored in Cuban culture anyway. Um but he's an atypical boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's kind of like um a little effeminate, a little like reserved and quiet and that's not okay in cuban culture like cubans are very you gotta be loud, loud and boisterous,
0: <laughs> <yeah>.
2: <laughs> very very loud and um machismo is like a big thing in that culture and so because he's not like that they were like are you a fag are you this are you that like mm-hmm. yeah and so i was very active in their upbringing and i mean even though i was at a distance, I still raised both of them. I made sure they had, like, vitamins coming in the mail. Um, and then my, my father is white, and he um, he was very, very abusive. And a lot of times would spend the family money on things that, like, weren't food. So sometimes they wouldn't have food. I'd have to send them food. I did all of their education. So my mom didn't send them to school. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister because she had leukemia um, as a child so my family I know it's a lot like my whole family history is a lot um, so she didn't want her going to school because they were afraid the kids were gonna make fun of her for having leukemia so I educated my sister and my brother he was badly burned when he was a year old so um he's in the walker and he pulled on the rice cooker and the water came down, burned his legs, but he's recovered really, really well. Um, but they were afraid of people seeing his scar and making fun of him, so that was why they didn't send him to school. So yeah, just all of their care A lot fell of vanity. on me. Yeah, it's an extremely vague yeah. culture, but yeah. So all of their their care fell on me, and I mean, since I was like nine.
1: You were a parentified child.
2: Yes. Um, And so it's kind of crazy because it makes me feel so much older than I am. And my brother just turned 18, and now I'm starting over with a baby. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) I feel like I'm 50. Will you ever not be a mom, (laughs) Cynthia? Yeah,
0: exactly. No,
2: it's just going to be perpetual for me. I was also a nanny for um, a lot of my 20s, so... (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. that's, yeah, I've just, I I love kids though. So Mm -hmm. I it never really felt like a burden or anything, but yeah. So now there's all that, that history and background (laughs) for you, but yeah. Zach, what's it like for you?
1: I'm sure you know Cynthia's story, but just sitting here next to her as she's telling it, what does it bring up for you?
0: Uh, I remember when she first kind of told me certain things about her family and as we got to know each other I got to know her her experience and history more and every time I heard things that had happened I just like gained so much respect for how she handled it and how courageous she was and how she overcame so many things and even when she wanted to give up and just run away she stayed in that household to take care of her siblings who were also stuck there, and she sacrificed like so much for them. So, it, I, I have so much respect for her that way, and it also gives me confidence as as um as how she will be as a mother, and um, that it just makes me know that she's uh, such a great partner that way to be raising a, a child with. So,
1: your love story is so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, (laughs) It's very um, wholesome. (laughs) So you, Zach, started the Paradox Institute in 2020, Mm -hmm. which was when you first started talking with Cynthia, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how have things evolved over the last few years as you become a team and built out the Paradox
0: Institute? So it began with this idea of I wanted to basically fill a niche in sex and gender in the culture where... I noticed there was not a lot of content that was accurate and educational and also entertaining that had good like production values and great aesthetics and all that. So I wanted to combine this like s- the scientific literature on sex and gender with digestible educational, aesthetically pleasing content. And that's how it started with me making animated animated videos on sex and gender and talking about what biological sex means, the what the average differences are between males and females, and talking about the denial of sex across culture. And I wanted to really combat that sex denialism. And then when I started talking to Cynthia, we didn't really like join forces on the Paradox Institute until a little bit later Once we, once we started living together and I moved to North Carolina... And that provided us the opportunity to really collaborate. And since then, she has brought on another writer to write more educational articles on the website. And she has also basically is the leader of this pamphlet project. And we created a pamphlet that summarizes the harms of gender-affirming care, backed up with scientific sources. But we wanted it to be unique in the sense that it was aesthetically pleasing and and eye-catching and just a great piece of design. And so that was uh, her idea. And we would not be where we are today in terms of the like content expansion. We still have the animated videos, but we have this extra content and this extra drive and, and passion now to expand where we started. And so she's helped a lot with that.
2: Yeah, show the pamphlet.
0: And yeah, <laughs> this is the pamphlet myths of gender affirming care and we chose the unicorn for a very Mm -hmm. obvious reason if you think of like the gender unicorn that you'll see on social media or shared in schools and we wanted to basically do a nod to that and then on the inside you can see there's a qr code there takes you to the website with all the sources and then um this way and just takes you through the all the myths and what gender dysphoria is and, and what gender affirming care is and and the different issues that come up with cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers, and yeah. what's happening in the culture today.
2: Yeah, and the the sources and everything are um, like they're not just sources from like biased researchers or anything. There's even one that was co-authored by Rachel Levine in there.
0: Yeah, there was a, a, a source by Rachel Levine around 2015 or so talking about how of the adolescents who are on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, that this can result in permanent infertility and that they need to be very aware of the risks and the potential consequences of taking these uh, experimental drugs. And that is something that, yes, Rachel Levine did author. Yeah. So that's somebody who's very outspoken for gender ideology. Now
2: saying things differently, but (laughs) yeah, apparently back then... Even Rachel Levine had some principles. (laughs) So
1: So walk us through your pamphlet. I'm curious how you decided on how to distill this wealth of information that you have into the most crucial points for this pamphlet. Mm -hmm. Can you guide us through what those points are and how you chose them?
0: So the first step was the writing, just getting the content, like the base text knowing what we were going to say yeah. and what we, were, what we were going to include and what not to include because on a pamphlet, you don't want to overwhelm the reader with too much information. Mm-hmm. Um, you also want to provide enough information, right? So it was getting that balance. And that's where Cynthia came in with just the writing stuff yeah.
2: So um, initially, what I did was start a group with some of our friends to just collect all the information on this that we could and other subjects as well, which we're going to release other pamphlets on. Um, And just this group is basically like this organized repository of information. And from there, we brainstormed on what does the public not know? What are they most misinformed on? What are the biggest and most harmful lies out there about this? And so we started with what gender dysphoria is because a lot of people don't know. Um, It's been so diluted down into, well, you're just uncomfy, and then slapping on a label makes you feel real good. And it's like, no, that's not what it is at all. Um, And so then from there, um, we talked about the comorbidities because. Because it's been so diluted and, and because of all the conflation, um, people are, like, glossing over the autism uh, as, like, a potential comorbidity, the eating disorders, the um, potential for PTSD or sexual trauma, things like that, um, the OT- uh, OCD and, and all of those other things that can factor into it or seem like it. You know, like, it it kind of is being sold as, like, a cure-all for, like, just not fitting in. And um, so that was one thing that we really wanted to make clear is that it's not a guarantee that it's going to be gender dysphoria. And then... um, Or that
1: gender dysphoria is the root cause and that medicalizing that root cause is going to alleviate all the other things rather than the possibility of the other way around.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, That's what the first page covers. mm -hmm. So that's what we wanted to introduce the reader to is that concept that this comorbidity concept where there's so many other things going on underneath the surface that are not being treated. And then the next step was to show the actual process of gender affirming care. So Mm -hmm. the puberty blockers that are given. And the fact that the vast majority of of kids on puberty blockers will go on to take cross-sex hormones
2: to treat
0: this these these issues like
2: yeah that means that it works and it's like no (laughs) not
0: really and we talk about the potential issues with uh the effects Mm -hmm. so how there's been studies that have shown that they can affect infertility they can affect bone density, mm-hmm. they can impact the maturation of the brain yeah. and all these different effects yeah. that are so really, it's not really harmful.
2: safe. It's not reversible. It's not even predictable, like what types of side effects you're going to have from these medications because the endocrine system is so delicate. Well, one of um, the lies that's
1: used to market puberty blockers is that they just buy a child more time to think. And that yeah. if that's really what the purpose is, then why do ninety-five percent plus of children go on to take cross-sex hormones if if this is buying them time to think, wouldn't some yeah. think, never mind? Right.
0: And if we see yeah, and we see just... that uh, onto that point, we see that those who don't go on to puberty blockers, they outgrow their gender dysphoria. About yeah. sixty one to ninety-eight percent outgrow their gender dysphoria and just or or wind up being at peace with their birth yeah. sex.
2: And if it were just time to think, why do we have to keep affirming the gender identity then? Why not then offer the, you know, conversion therapy of just living as your sex and accepting that and and that sort of thing? And for those like, who are why... just listening,
1: con- conversion therapy was in air quotes <laughs> when Cynthia said it. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
2: Yes. Um as it, I tried to make it sound yeah, as sarcastic yeah, yeah. as possible to you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it, it's just why not offer those things as an option? I remember that that used to be like one of the treatments for people who were presenting with gender dysphoria was okay, well, you know, just try living as your sex and, and see what that means for you. And, and just don't apply like a really strong, Stereotype or label to it, just exist and see if you still feel the same way at the end of the year, and then we can come back to it.
1: Adolescent developmental psychology, what you're talking about is the idea of identity foreclosure, that adolescence Mm -hmm. is a time where young people need to grapple with identity over the course of years and into early adulthood. And it's important not to um, foreclose, not to decide too quickly and pin yourself in. But I think a lot of people don't realize the power. Of social affirmation and social transition. Yeah. And they're not taking into consideration the context in which this is happening, that this isn't mm-hmm. happening in some really neutral, just so called accepting culture this is actually right. happening and in a culture where children are being fed these really poisonous ideas about how being cis is boring and oppressive and yeah. I would put cis in air quotes as well i mean mm-hmm. <laughs> i think most of us agree cis is a slur um but that's yeah. that, that's what they're being told right that that mm. if you're cis you're boring and you're oppressive and whereas if you identify as trans you get all this celebration and belonging yeah so of, you can't not take social factors into consideration when looking at any psychological phenomenon, what to speak of an adolescent psychological phenomenon.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like when you offer like a party and celebration versus just living life yeah. <laughs> or, you know, even worse, being an oppressor. <laughs>
1: like, or having to face one, the shame of, the, you, you know, that, that there could be some other explanation for why yeah. you don't fit in or why this, that, or the other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, Eight Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Let's keep going down the list. So, So you talked about um, so far, addressing comorbidities, what, mm-hmm. how puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones are prescribed, what some of the risks mm-hmm. are of those. What else?
0: So on the third page, we get into what's happening internationally. Um, yeah. Because a lot and, of people don't
2: know that either. You hear, yeah. oh, every major medical organization is 100% behind this. Mm, no, it's starting to become smaller and smaller now like it used to be that there was a time when they were all 100% behind this but now we're seeing more and more countries drop this
0: yeah so for example in england <laughs> you have the famous tavistock gender clinic that put many adolescents on this one way path to transition without without actually treating the comorbidities and the other issues underneath right and that clinic is now set, set to close in 2023 and that's what we discuss on the on the pamphlet And then also the Scandinavian countries have really rolled back the process of uh, transitioning minors. Norway, Sweden, and Finland have all come out halting pediatric transition Mm -hmm. because of its experimental nature and the harms that they've noticed and and seen in the evidence so far. So yeah, that's a big part of the pamphlet and a big part of what's happening internationally.
2: And then we also address the trans child or dead child myth.
0: Yep, yeah, that's a big one. The idea that uh, they say that if you do not allow your child to go forward with their trans identity, if you do not give them puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones, then they will commit suicide. And this is a emotional blackmail tool yeah. to basically get parents and other people to put their child onto this path and also make the child or the adolescent feel like that they're really unsafe that they're going to they're yeah. going to be so depressed and anxious and so just unbelievably distressed if they don't get that treatment right yeah. and it tells them that they are not strong enough to handle whatever they're facing and that they have to be medicalized right and like it's we, very dangerous we
2: hear all the time this uh, conflicting message of oh, trans is beautiful, we're so strong, this and that, we're the reason everybody else has rights. But then at the same time, if we don't get exactly what we want, when we want it, if we get misgendered, if we wear the wrong color or we're not affirmed 100% by everybody, oh, you're adding to somebody's suicide. And it's like, what? But no. Yeah.
0: One, of, <laughs> one of the studies that we used to talk about how no, the evidence shows that if kids are not given puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, hormones no, they do not commit suicide. Yeah. There's no data to back that up, that it, that it increases the suicide rate if they're not given those things. And one scientific study that we used in the pamphlet to discuss those claims, it covers that emotional blackmail in that study saying mm-hmm. how this is a really dangerous thing to say to kids and adolescents who are already dealing with such high rates of anxiety and depression, right, that they're going to kill themselves. Like, that is so irresponsible for people to say. And I'm really glad that an actual scientific study looked at that and, and mentioned that.
2: Which, when I was very, very little, like six, seven years old, was probably the only time that I ever contemplated suicide or anything like that. In relation to the gender dysphoria, I contemplated it more later in life over other things, but not the gender dysphoria. And it was only because I, I was too young to understand death at the time. So I, I was like, well, can I just die and then come back as a boy? Can I, like, if I killed myself or I hurt myself, would then I get the body Of a boy, like I didn't understand um, permanence or like existence yet. And so that was my, and I I couldn't talk to anybody about it either. Like I had no one in my family that I could speak to about this. So it was just a lot of walking around and like thinking about existentialism at like six. Wow, you grew (laughs) up fast. Um, unfortunately, yes. Um, but yeah, so it was a lot of, a lot of that, um, at the time and, uh, yeah. And I think that that's like the only thing I can think of that ever really made me feel suicidal about it. Um, but it wasn't necessarily suicidal, like, (sighs) like in the way that we understand it when we mature, like the depression and things like that. I wouldn't say that I was depressed. It was just that I was very confused as to what it meant to be female and in a female body. And that I wasn't going to grow up to be a man and like what permanence was and life was and things like that. So I don't know, just that that whole trans child or dead child thing, like, really, really rubs me the wrong way because it's not handled well at all Like from a, from a social perspective, like a social psychological perspective. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm so glad that you're confronting
1: that myth. It's one of the most dangerous mm-hmm. things out mm-hmm. there. And I'm, I'm also really passionate about debunking this myth. And especially mm-hmm. given that the opposite is what's true, given that mm-hmm. long-term, seven to 10 years plus, the the outcome rates are dismal. And the more yeah. invasive and permanent procedures someone has had, the higher risk they are of all-cause mortality and 19 yeah. times higher rate of suicide. And of course, yeah. I think people are afraid to speculate as to why that is. But I'm not afraid to connect the dots, given my yeah. 10 years of experience in the mental health field and three years of grad school before that. Based on everything that we know about suicide, you know, and that, and that's where I'll say things like the fact that although it is very alarming, of course, to worry as a parent that your child is at risk of suicide, you do have the capacity as a parent to keep your child safe at home. And if you're working with an ethical mental health provider, they can guide you through that. They can help you determine as a family at what point hospitalization is needed. Now, yeah. I will say I'm very concerned about how hospitals are handling this issue because hospitals end up triangulating children further. They don't do a thorough analysis of yeah. all the factors that drove that kid to the hospital. They rather fixate on the gender dysphoria and and back families into a corner, sometimes even essentially holding the child hostage and refusing to send the kid back home until the parents agree to affirm with the kid right there in the room. So the kid is learning that they have yeah. all this power and that this is the role yeah. of doctors. And that next time they're feeling this way, they can go to the hospital again. They can use the medical system to bully their parents into compliance. Um,
2: right.
1: And I've seen cases of hospitals holding kids where I know based on my experience working in the field, how the usual criteria and processes go for when you release someone because they're stable enough to go back home. And they're not following the standard protocol when it comes to this gender stuff. So I'm very concerned about the hospitalization and how that's currently going. But my point is, more generally speaking, that a good therapist uh, can assess... The complexities and nuances of any particular expression of suicidal ideation can guide Mm -hmm. when hospitalization is needed or when a higher level of care is needed and can help a family work on safety planning at home. There are things that parents can do, and most parents are highly motivated to do those things to keep their kids safe. So that involves things like locking up sharps and medicines in a safe, Mm -hmm. for example. If you have firearms, there are, you know, firearm safety procedures you need to do.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: if the kid, you know, you have to assess what is what is the degree, the urgency, the the clarity and the urgency of the plan, if the kid even has a plan for how they might take their life and then remove access to those means while in, including while incorporating more coping mechanisms and interventions. Mm-hmm. Um removing privacy isn't always the best thing for a distressed teen, but Mm -hmm. if a parent has to take away their teen's privacy for a short period of time in order to prevent them from harming themselves, a parent will do that. So Mm -hmm. this idea that your kid will just go off and do something while you're not paying attention and there's nothing you can do about it and that they they will complete suicide, Mm -hmm. it's all very... Mm -hmm overblown. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned when a young person expresses suicidal ideation. Of course, there are uncharitable listeners who will take my words out of context Mm -hmm. and try to twist them around to say things I didn't say. But it's really important to confront this myth given that it's used to manipulate people into doing things that have a high rate of regret. Now, if we look at the long-term suicide risk, here's where I'll, again, speculate that other people are afraid to speculate for fear of sounding unprofessional. But Um, responsibility to loved ones is a huge protective factor in people who are otherwise at risk of depression or suicide. When Mm -hmm. you take away someone's reproductive capacity, you're taking away their capacity to have children. And when you affect their sexual functioning and and their appearance, you're also reducing their likelihood of finding a secure romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. So you're taking away the protective factor of relationships. Um, We also know that these procedures and medications, um, if you can call them that, these drugs um, yeah, affect the brain, they, and they can create mm-hmm. chronic pain and disabilities that make it hard to enjoy mm-hmm. your life. Chronic pain is a huge risk factor for suicide. So is disability. Yeah. So is not being able to engage in hobbies. So yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. When we give kids puberty blockers that are gonna impair their future bone development so that they're at risk of fractures, yeah. so that they can't be physically active, mm-hmm. Um, when people have urogenital issues, as we know, are a result of these hormones and surgeries, then their mm-hmm. lifestyles become very constricted,
2: and yeah. um,
1: all of these are absolutely risk factors for suicide. And th- there are more that mm-hmm. we could speculate about as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: And the whole premise that the whole premise that you can be born in the wrong body is a very strong. Um, idea that people latch on to because it yeah. it seems to explain their discomfort and the dissociation that they're experiencing. But ultimately it's it's not anything that's based in, a, in science because yeah. it's a metaphysical claim.'re you're, right You're making a claim about something that cannot be falsified. So it's an unfal- it's an unfalsifiable claim, right? It's kind of thinking of as if you have this soul that's separate from your body that then is somehow a different sex than the body that you're in and uh, it just doesn't really it doesn't add up and when you try to actually treat it that way because your brain and your body are integrated into one when you're altering your body it's not like it's going to align it with your brain or however they think about it yeah
2: no.
0: it's just going to make you more dissociated because you're moving further and further away from your actual body, like who you are.
2: We've seen studies that um, HRT can increase risk of dementia and other psychological issues. So I can't imagine that, you know, put put a distressed person on cross-sex hormones and just see, you know, how it goes psychologically. It's not going to go great. Like definitely should be addressing the, the psychological concerns first. And then once a person seems more of sound mind, we can come back to that potential. But uh, like the fact that the there are people right now who legitimately seem psychologically disturbed and that they can be affirmed in every way, including legally and everything else, that is bananas to me it seems incredibly irresponsible and it's no wonder this thing has kind of steamrolled everything because the people in the, on the front lines of it are not well so of course they're not going to see things rationally or want you know safeguarding or anything like that mm-hmm. because the, it's a runaway train it's not controversial yeah. that hormones
1: affect our mood and behavior. This is well-established. Yeah. Every woman knows yeah. this from personal experience <laughs> of
2: mm-hmm.
1: menstrual cycle, yeah. PMS, um, the impacts of birth control, the impacts of pregnancy, mm-hmm. postnatal issues. Yeah. Every woman has a direct visceral experience. Now, some women are more sensitive than others to those effects. Yeah. Um, men remember what it was like to go through puberty and your you know first mm-hmm. rushes of testosterone. So of course, I yeah. mean, what do people think is gonna happen when you give these yeah. really mood-altering right. substances to people who are not well? And it's also this kind of endless chase too, because it is mm-hmm. yes. because it's actually not possible to change sex, because you cannot
2: mm-hmm.
1: as as your little kid brain dreamed of yeah. when you were six or seven, you can't just mm-hmm. die and be reborn as as the opposite sex. Right. Because that's not possible, people will always be. Chasing the next thing. We talk about this in our film Affirmation Generation how the dysphoria moves around, how, you know, first there might be a fixation. Let's say for a girl, on feeling so called dysphoria about her voice or about the femininity Mm -hmm. of her face. And then she starts taking testosterone and her voice drops and she grows facial hair and then it shifts to her breasts. Or, I mean, this is unlike, well, usually it starts off with the breasts as well. But, you know, but then when Mm -hmm. she starts binding or when she gets a double mastectomy, then it shifts to the hips or the height or, you know, and this, this is this endless chase creates a huge, Market, yeah, it's a humongous industry that sells people the next solution and the next solution. And you go down this path for years. And then there are yeah. these bogus studies that show that in the short term, uh, they're, you know, three, six, twelve months after these procedures people report reduced distress. Now, there are a lot of holes we could poke yeah. in those studies, and I'm curious if there's any holes you want to poke. But one I will poke is that even if those studies were robust, it's too short of a time span. Because of course, during that yeah. time, exactly. um, they've. this is someone who's been telling themselves for years and been affirmed in this belief by lots of people around them for a long time that they will feel better. So there's a huge placebo mm-hmm. effect. And there's a huge social component of not wanting to let down all the people who you've been telling about your dysphoria. I've seen Mm detransitioners really grapple with so much fear and shame and guilt and regret about dragging their families into it, not wanting to disappoint their parents who they talked into it. So there are all these psychological and social factors that go into the reasons why some people do uh, appear to temporarily feel better. Plus there's, you yeah. know, you are on mood altering substances at that point. So there's yeah. that. Testosterone can have all kinds and, of influences yeah. on a female and it can feel great or terrible depending. But yeah. there are all these reasons that that mm-hmm. it's just too short of a time span to look at. And what we mm-hmm. really need to look at is the long-term stuff. I also um, recently have been reminded by uh, some of the wonderful people I talk to that there is no ICD code for Uh, Detransition. So, there's not actually a way Mm -hmm. for doctors or therapists to note in medical billing software or in a patient's chart Mm -hmm. as a formal code, the same way you would have a code for anxiety, depression, Mm -hmm. gender dysphoria, um, history Mm -hmm. of cancer, Mm -hmm. any of these things that a doctor could note in a patient's chart. Since there is none for detransition or for, let's say, History of taking wrong sex hormones. Um, mm. We actually have no way of tracking the outcomes on a large scale.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah. Then you can't you can't look at any data and do a like retrospective study yeah. either, and that makes it really difficult too. In um, fact, but, I've even heard.
1: Yeah. I just have to tack on, and I don't I don't have like a resource for this. So if anyone has more information, please include it in the comments on YouTube. Um. But I've even heard. That people who they transition when they seek care to help them start living as their natal sex again, that that gets coded as more transing, mm, more gender yeah, affirming I've, care.
2: Yeah, I've, I've seen that, that too. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that as well from yeah. multiple de-transitioners I've talked to. Which <sighs> it's difficult because. As I've learned more and more and as I've gotten more into this and spoken to more people, it's harder for me to support transition in general. Um, Like I don't hold anything against my friends who are trans, but I see how they struggle with it and like, you know, here and there with what they will share with me. And it just, it really makes me worry about them. And it makes me realize like, this isn't like a great way to treat anything because a lot of them still ha- like have those um, delusions or like the the anxiety about little, little things like, you know, oh, my voice, my voice is this. And, and if I stop tea, then I, I can hear it. I can hear that I'm sounding more feminine by the day. And it's like, but I, I, I need it. I need the tea, but it's giving me psoriasis and you know, it's making me feel sick and whatever, but I just feel like I need to keep taking it. And it's like,
0: <sighs> it's like an addictive behavior yeah, to try I, and reduce that feeling of being really distressed and uncomfortable about something. Yeah, And there's, I'm, I'm thinking of things like agoraphobia, where things like exposure therapy can actually help a lot where you you provide this patient with the stimulus or whatever that they're afraid of and they get more exposed to it they get more exposed to it and then they find that they're actually there's nothing to be afraid of or even if there is something to be afraid of they're strong enough to handle it
1: that's a great connection to realize it's okay as a therapist i've gotten up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organify makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and three grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com, that's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I'm so glad you brought that up, both, both of those points. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to draw another connection there. So I'm reading a book right now called The Way Out. It's about neuroplastic Mm. pain and pain reprocessing therapy. Um, This was recommended Mm. to me by Travis Brown from The Signal Productions who had a horrendous battle with debilitating pain and tried a lot of things. And this book was the thing that helped him. I've also heard from other long haulers Mm. who support my work who've reached out to, to... commiserate over how we're treating our long-haul COVID. And uh, pain reprocessing therapy has been recommended by, by someone in that camp as well. So I became curious, and I just finished listening to mm. the audiobook, The Way Out. And um, it's fascinating to learn about neuroplastic pain, uh, the pain patterns that form in the brain. There's usually a triggering event. Oftentimes, it could be an injury, something real that did happen, um, as well as periods of high stress but uh, the brain learns to essentially become hypervigilant to pain. And in the process, it learns to essentially misread neutral sensations and cues from various body parts as pain Mm -hmm. and code them as such. So the pain feels Mm -hmm. very real. And it's not to say it's all in your head, but it is in your brain. And your brain is your nervous system. It runs throughout your whole body. It's it's complex and very little of it is the, the conscious thought part. So it's been fascinating for me to learn about this and learning about neuroplasticity from a different angle. Of course, as a therapist, I've been Mm -hmm. studying neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. for years, but it's just... So I've been thinking about the pain-fear cycle. This book is um, helping call my own attention to ways in which my stress response and uh, my own fears and emotions have reinforced some of my physical ailments. Mm -hmm. And I find as I'm thinking about this that it has a lot of relevance for my own patients, not necessarily always just dealing with Mm. physical pain. So I'll draw this connection here, the neuroplasticity. We've heard neurons that fire together, wire together. Behaviors can be reinforced over time to a profound degree. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about something like obsessive-compulsive disorder— Part of how that develops, now I'm, I'm not an expert on OCD, so OCD experts, correct me gently, leave friendly comments and I'm <laughs> open to your ideas. Um, but it's my understanding that part of how OCD develops is through the repetition where there is some kind of cue. It could be an internal or external cue. It could be an emotion, a fear. It could also be a situation or a place. Um, And then there's the coping response, however irrational it might be, the OCD behavior, right? And then there's a temporary alleviation of distress, much like addiction, and that this pattern becomes repeated thousands upon thousands of times. And then you've entrenched those neural pathways. You've reinforced that behavioral pattern. And uh, some of pain reprocessing therapy bears some resemblance to exposure therapy for OCD. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's tricky with pain because you don't want to overexpose yourself. You don't want to push yourself because the essence of pain reprocessing therapy is establishing a sense of safety in your body, right? It's reconditioning your body and your brain so that when you feel that sensation, once you have gathered sufficient evidence that that is in fact neuroplastic pain and not a sign that there's something wrong with your body, um, then you can go on to sending yourself signals of safety and that this is a false alarm. So you don't want to push yep. yourself yep. too hard because if you yeah. push yourself past that threshold, just telling yourself, it's all in my head, I have nothing to worry about, I'm not injured, well, then you don't actually physi- physiologically feel safe and more pain is going to yeah. you know push you into a relapse of symptoms. But there is an optimal balance and that balance um, you know changes as you progress where um, – There's going to be times that you need to engage in your avoidance or your soothing behaviors, and then there's times to welcome back the pain or the distress as an opportunity to practice these new coping tools and send yourself signals of safety. That also bears resemblance with, as you were saying, the process of treating agoraphobia. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, I've witnessed people who have, I would say, agoraphobic tendencies where I can see Mm -hmm. that pattern and I wouldn't necessarily give them that diagnosis but I see here's somebody who left to their own devices with entropy and habits taking hold will develop an agoraphobic pattern. And that's basically whenever we reinforce a pattern of avoidance in response to fear. And that's why it's important to regularly challenge ourselves just the same way Mm -hmm. that our muscles will atrophy if we don't use them. So we have to uh, continuously challenge our muscles to keep them strong. Mm -hmm. Same thing with courage um yeah. it, you have to regularly practice tolerating difficult experiences and surviving them and then returning to a sense of safety and then returning to challenge again in order to maintain that psychological strength so people develop this agoraphobic pattern or any kind of agor any kind of phobic pattern when there's a cycle mm-hmm. of normal fear being met with avoidance behaviors so it all loops together beautifully and let's yeah. bring it back to gender dysphoria. Thank you. That,
0: that actually brings me to something that I experienced with, I had an, anxi- an anxiety disorder very briefly, or it, it was getting towards that back when I was in school, um, anxiety and stress kept piling up and piling up. And then I started having panic attacks and I had never had panic attacks before. And it was so, so scary to feel those sensations of like not being able to breathe, the tingling, in my extremities and things like that. And I was like, I was so concerned about it and I was so fearful of it that it it made me withdraw. And I had to actually withdraw from school for a whole semester and um, take a break. And I noticed that it got really bad when I kept reinforcing those neural pathways and being overly focused on my body and the sensations and being scared of the sensations. I even went to the ER because like, I was like I thought there was something wrong that needed to be fixed and it there was nothing wrong it was just that um, I was so anxious and, and scared about the sensations I was feeling and all the stress that I wanted this like external fix for it and uh, I realized that that was not over time after after experiencing that over a few months I eventually uh, was able to kind of quell those those fears and just face the face them and face the sensations and learn that it's okay and that you just have to sit and observe those feelings and sensations and thoughts and not judge them, just let them pass. Mm-hmm. And I, I went through like meditation and I went through some therapy and it all helped uh, yeah. a lot. And that year I went on the trip of my life. I went to um, Asia, went to Hong Kong, Japan, and South Korea after that anxiety episode and all the panic attacks and that was really a big step for me in getting out of my comfort zone and because I'd never been out of the country before never experienced anything like that and it was with my uh, school group and it was such a powerful experience and it inspired me so much that I actually that year wound up writing the gender paradox in 2019 my book on sex and gender and then the following year in 2020 I started the paradox institute so I don't think any of this would have happened if I hadn't have gone through all that anxiety and the panic attacks and then overcame that and faced my fears. Well, it's like so that was a big you brought your life back and then some. Mm-hmm. You
1: d- you also develop yeah. that deep sense of competence that you can face what might feel like an insurmountable challenge and yeah. and recover from it and develop those strengths. I <laughs> so I think that you started with how gender dysphoria is like agoraphobia, and then I went on this whole—I expounded on that. You related to it, and I want to loop it back because I think there is something really similar at play with gender dysphoria where, mm-hmm. as you were both talking about at the beginning, and as you state succinctly at the beginning of your pamphlet, uh, gender dysphoria is associated with a lot of comorbidities. And there are some of us who would even take the stance that it's a symptom of something else. So now it is its own freestanding diagnosis, who knows what they're gonna do with the (laughs) DSM-6. But for now, (laughs) um, it is its own diagnosis, (laughs) however problematic some of us might find it. Um, But we know that gender dysphoria has high comorbidity rates with autism and OCD and eating disorders, and those all have Mm -hmm. high comorbidity rates with each other as it is. So when it comes to this sort of OCD component, not necessarily something we would diagnose a given patient with, but the ways in which the the psychological patterns of those who experience gender dysphoria resemble obsessive compulsive patterns, there starts with some kind of cue or trigger for some kind of distress. It could be any form of psychological distress, internal or external could be as simple as normal developmental life challenges associated with the awkwardness of puberty, the social stuff going on at that time, the body image stuff going on at that Mm -hmm. time, um, or could have to do with family dynamics or any number of other things. But anyway, there's distress. And by the way, I will add, I've noticed from my work with parents that um, their trans-identified daughters distress and behavioral issues over gender stuff seem to get worse during the premenstrual time of their cycles, which Mm -hmm. is no surprise to anyone who's looked at how hormones affect the female brain. So I actually, um, sometimes I teach parents to track their daughter's menstrual cycles. If your daughter's willing to work with you on it, depending Mm -hmm. on the strength of your relationship, teach her to track her own cycle. But if she's resistant, uh, then Pay attention, you know, if, if that means looking in the bathroom mm-hmm. trash, you know, whatever it means. Yeah. Start tracking your daughter's cycles and track her mood and behavior to notice if there's a correlation. Because a lot of parents will report yeah. that that time after a girl's period leading up to ovulation, that time in the cycle, that most women feel their best. Their daughters are feeling and acting their best as well. And then it's, yeah. you know, maybe a few days before her period hits is when the big storm comes and the fights over gender so anyway, there's there's yeah. any trigger for distress, right? Uh, it could be psychological, mm-hmm. social, physical pain. And then there is a linkage to the body as scapegoat. I did an episode um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: with an mm-hmm. old school psychotherapist who's been working with detransitioners since I was a kid. Um, Bob Withers called the scapegoated body, transition regret in psychotherapy. So the body mm-hmm. becomes a scapegoat, mm-hmm. the sex of the body in particular, or the so-called gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and... That's that's the fixation, right? The the yeah. behavioral and mental fixation on this is why, right? It could be any number of things that are actually underlying it, but there's a narrative here and a seed that gets planted. Mm-hmm. And then the behavior in response to that could be obsessing over trans mm-hmm. social media content texting your friends who are trans identified about how awful your parents are, getting into a fight with your parents, pushing for a binder, pushing for a clinic appointment. It could be, you know, any kind of um, behavior that exacerbates this family conflict or this distress over gender. And then the cycle repeats itself. And so when you learn as a young person whose brain is still developing that this is what to do with your distress, you really do have This narrative and you believe it and you experience it to be true. And it's this narrative, my dysphoria, um, that they call it, which is really similar to the obsession that someone can develop with their neuroplastic pain or with their agoraphobia and panic disorder Mm -hmm. or with um, any number of sort of irrational fears that a person with obsessive compulsive disorder might have. So how do we treat that? I don't work with this population, but I do hear from clinicians who do work with this population and are trying to figure out how to help. And I think if your patients are open or if you're not a therapist, but you're in some other capacity trying to help someone and you resonate, you recognize this pattern that we're talking about, how do you help that? Well, to help help lighten and untangle the fixation that makes everything about gender. There's a huge mm-hmm. mistake that parents often make. I'm trying to make this episode valuable to all the parents who I know are listening who are worried about their kids. Um, (laughs) One of the biggest mistakes that I frequently see in my counseling and consulting clients who are worried about their kids is making things about gender when the kid didn't make it about gender because the parents are so worried Mm -hmm. and so upset about this issue that they'll end up poking the bear sometimes. And it's like, you need to help your kid stop fixating on this. There's more to life. But when you're in that OCD mindset, you see the whole world through that filter.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me a lot of like the therapy that I did was very much exposure therapy.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
2: Um, I stumbled across like one of the only outlets I had for like seeing the world really. Um, That wasn't school because I was kind of... (sighs) it was a, I grew up in a really bad neighborhood and like, it wasn't the best place to learn about the world. And I was like a really nerdy reserved kid for the most part. So I didn't have a ton of friends. I wasn't allowed to have friends come over. I didn't get along with any girls. So I was like, okay, I guess I will just be a loner forever. And um, the way that I learned about the world was through TV. And back in the nineties, there were a lot of, talk shows and things like that and they were all competing over who could get the most extreme like psychological disorders uh, on air at one point and one which was great for me as a kid who was dealing with a lot of psychological issues I was like awesome I'm not alone there are people just as crazy as I am <laughs> but um one of the episodes that I saw, I wish I could remember which show it was, but I was just so young at the time. I think I must have been 8 or 9. Was an episode where they had on people with eating disorders, body integrity disorders, and gender dysphoria. And which I now looking back, I'm like that was so forward thinking for them to have all three on at the same time because they're all related. So, um I learned a lot from that episode, but one thing that they talked about was phototherapy, which was this experimental therapy that they were doing with eating disorder patients where they took basically artistic nudes of the the patients. Um, and them working with doing the poses and then seeing the photos helped them relate like what they did physically with seeing their body realistically in the photos. And so fast forward to my early twenties and there was this photographer that I really, really liked and he did artistic underwater nudes and it turned out not only did he live nearby, but all of his patients had some kind of, or I say patients but I, at the time, I just thought they were models, but then I found out they were basically patients, um, were dealing with some kind of body issue. Most of them were postpartum moms who were adjusting to their bodies after giving birth and had a lot of issues around like how they looked and the water kind of helped make everything look softer. So they, they were okay with seeing themselves nude and it helped them accept themselves and feel like not ugly and things like that. Um, A lot of, The other women were ones who came out of the BDSM community and had a lot of trauma processing that they had tried to do through kink because there's that weird myth where it's like it's all about consent and empowerment and you'll feel great and get over everything if you do kink, and it's like "Mm, no. (laughs) So, a lot of them were coming out of that community, and um. Then one of the pictures that I I saw and I was like, okay, I'm going to message him was this woman who looked very masculine compared to this other woman. And I was like, wow, he can do that for her. Then maybe I'll see myself as masculine in the pictures. Like I will see a masculine part of myself and it'll help me like accept myself. And so, um, I went to him and I explained everything and. He looked at me like really seriously when we met and he was like, I can't make you look like her because you don't look like her, but I can show you what you do look like. And we can work together on that. And it was the first time anybody ever said that to me in no uncertain terms that there was no way that I was ever going to look like masculine at all. I, I just don't, I don't have that presentation. Um, and so it was really striking, but it really made me trust him because I was like, he's not just telling me what I want to hear. So I got in the pool and I was like shaking head to toe. <laughs> I was so scared, um, and nervous and everything. Cause I didn't know what to expect. And I'm, you know, super vulnerable. I'm nude in this pool. <laughs> I'm like, I have to go underwater, which I had my own issues with water at the time too. Um, going back to like childhood, like my dad had uh, tried to drown me on multiple occasions. So this was like a, a yeah, this was a big deal for me to do this. Um, yeah, my dad is a horrible, horrible, horrible person. Like the extent of abuse there, just yeah. But um, this is a really big moment for me to do this and i did it and i i came out and i was like i hadn't even seen the pictures yet but i was just so proud of myself that i i did this you know
0: were you like that that's me really yeah like
2: after (laughs) yeah he was showing me the pictures and he was like that's what you look like and so we can focus on on doing this more if you want and you can come back as as much as you want, you can even stay here, and we can do multiple days if you want to do that.
0: And you had a big hand in creating the setup, or the framing, yeah. or the composition, so you're able to be creative and set up like whatever pose that you wanted to do. Yeah, it was in collaboration with him, I, and I, then I yeah, sketched
2: out poses and things that I wanted to to try because it wasn't just um, it wasn't just about like seeing myself, but also like creating art, and it was just this incredible like expressive experience for me and oh I was just addicted to it (laughs) and like I started like being able to just look at myself and I, I I can envision in my head like what I look like now which before this I could not do that I had no concept like even little things like when you're gonna buy clothes you like picture in your head what you're you might look like in the clothes." I couldn't do that. I had no concept of like what my body really looked See, like. See, and
0: this goes back to a really interesting fact in the neuroscience literature, which is that with people who have gender dysphoria, what they've found is that when they are shown opposite-sex morphs of themselves on an opposite-sex body or something, their brains light up like crazy, especially the areas that are involved in self-perception and own-body ownership. Yeah. And however, when they're shown a same-sex morph, their brains don't really activate as much. So people with gender dysphoria, they're they're really relating to that opposite-sex morph, so they're seeing themselves more like as if they're the opposite sex. Yeah. But through therapy, it's likely that you can actually reduce that activation where then the activation increases for the same-sex morph so that you relate more to your actual body and the sex you actually mm-hmm. are. And that's, I think, what... Phototherapy probably does. Is it actually um, it builds or potentially just reinforces and grows the maturation of those regions yeah. so that you can perceive yourself more accurately.
2: And so, um, it, yeah, it was just it's this amazing experience, and then it also helped me relate to my body in a like in a loving way too, like an appreciation for it. Um which I did not have, like, not just because of the gender dysphoria, but um, in my teens, um, I like, my first experience with sex was rape. And then my dad sexually abused me after that for years and trafficked me um, at threat of killing my mom, who was pregnant at the time, my sister. And so... It was the first time I ever really saw myself nude and just was appreciative and, you know, admiring it really for the first time being like, that's, that's me, like my vulnerability, like, you know, so it was, it was really transformative. And it was that like exposure therapy and seeing myself in a like a kind light, I guess, would be the way to, to say it, which it, it was the first time. It was the first time I had always been so um, revolted by my body, like as a child, like I I just wanted to cut it up. And then um, as I got over, the, the gender dysphoria started accepting. That's when the sexual abuse started. So went right back to just, totally hating it. And then here I was now being like, wow, like that's me. Like that's what I look like. And, and I can see it now and not hate it. And it was such a valuable therapy. I would love to see that more for people. Um, And then like the photographer had also been sexually abused as a child So just one of the first people I ever really opened up to about it was him. And it was um, just really good. I didn't feel alone. I didn't feel like disgusting for the first time ever. I felt like a lot of self-worth and things like that for the first time. And um, yeah, it was really, really good. And again, like the exposure therapy, talking about that stuff was extremely painful and you don't want to talk about it. It hurts, like physically hurts to talk about that stuff. And then, um, just being able to talk to him about it and talking to other people about it. And then finally I went to hypnotherapy to do inner child work and stuff like that and getting to talk about it there really, really repaired a lot of that stuff. (laughs) So now my gender dysphoria is so like minimal. Like I I really only have the issues like occasionally, but it's so, so rare. Um, A little bit started when I got pregnant and then it started that whole, like, this is alien. This is wrong. This is not Okay. This is really scary and gross and creepy and and that sort of thing. But then um, now it's I like because of him and how supportive he is and everything, and how he has just allowed me to to process those things and and been there for me, made me feel safe. And again, like going over all of this biology and learning about it and. Getting to see her growing and everything like it's been really beautiful and positive. I'm actually for the <laughs> I never thought this would happen, but I'm actually looking forward to the birth. Like I thought I'd be like terrified, like. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm excited, and I I'm really settling into like womanhood and embracing it and everything. And I don't know, it's just been a really great healing journey. Through exposure. Wow,
1: um, yes, Cynthia, thank no, thank <laughs> you for sharing your story, and um, you got like a ten out of ten on the trauma history, um, <laughs> yeah. and and look at you, you're doing amazing, and and you're you're beautiful, and you're healthy, and you're safe, and you have a good man, and so much to be grateful for, <laughs> and you're doing incredible work um really an honor to host you sharing your story so so transparently and vulnerably um i don't know what to say to i mean just the (laughs) the things that you have been through um i've never heard of this photo therapy before it i mean Of course, licensed therapists can't encourage our clients to take our clothes off in front of us. So I'm sure he wasn't a (laughs) conventional therapist, but I love hearing, you know, as somebody who does operate within certain ethical guidelines, I do really enjoy hearing about all the different ways that humans are being creative in their attempts to um, alleviate suffering for one another. And, um, you know, Zach, you brought up the points about the brain scans and- there's there's a whole conversation there we won't get into, but where I thought you might have been going when you first brought that up was um, something I remember from reading an article way back when on the Pitt blog, Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans, which for anyone who isn't familiar, that's at Pitt, P-I-T-T, dot And there's this two-part series that one of their contributors wrote. One of them was called something like the Trans Medical Taliban, and the other I don't remember. But they looked at the medical research. And um, where I thought you were going was the research showing that people with gender dysphoria or people who are trans identified, I don't remember which exactly, um, how it's phrased, have less activity in the brain regions associated with mind-body connection. And of course, because they're exhibiting signs of dissociation, and they're wrapped up in a belief system that's reinforcing that dissociation and essentially telling them they should promote that dissociation. Mm -hmm. So it would seem to me what follows from that is that we need more mind-body therapies. We need to help people feel safe and at home in their bodies. And there are many ways to do that. Yoga, mindfulness, massage therapy, um, all kinds of holistic care can help people feel more safe and connected and accepting toward their bodies. And now today we got to learn about this thing called phototherapy and and a way that uh, at least one brave creative photographer with his own trauma history is helping people see themselves. And isn't that so powerful? And that's been my observation in therapy that so much of what is healing for my patients is to feel seen honestly and accurately in a gentle and caring light. And yeah. I think that's what people who are suffering need, is, is to have that modeled yeah. for them and to be able to, over time, internalize what is it to see myself honestly and accurately. I referenced earlier in my conversation with Bob Withers, and in that episode, uh, he talked about a patient who um, had had uh, sex change surgery, and um, and this patient was male. And one of the patient's providers said to him, But you're not a woman, are you? You're a man who's had mutilating surgery. And this was exactly what that patient needed to hear. Now, I'm not saying that all people would be receptive to that. A lot of it depends on timing and context. And, you know, but for that patient, for someone to be willing to go there and, like, I see you, I see you exactly what's going on with you, was what they needed. I think truth heals, sunlight is the best disinfectant, as they say. So, thank you so much for sharing this beautiful story of your experiences with phototherapy and and receiving help, seeing yourself accurately and compassionately.
2: Yeah, that was probably the the thing I needed most was just compassion because I I didn't have it, I never had it. So, getting it through these like alternative therapies. Like a lot of it, the phototherapy and the hypnotherapy were um, ways for me to have the space to be compassionate for myself, which you go through abuse and trauma and you dissociate and you just are so self-critical. And it creates that thing of like, I must be bad. I must be wrong. And you're not. It's, it's, it's a lie and you become comfortable in it because it's, it's all, you know, like it, it kind of becomes fact to you and it's very, very hard to accept that you're okay and that you have value and even if you are being, like offering that value to others, like for me with my siblings and taking care of them, that was not about me. Like even at the height of my sui- suicide, uh, uh, like suicidal thoughts and, and things like that during the sexual abuse and everything, the only reason I didn't commit suicide was so that they would never feel like how I felt. <laughs> And so that they always had somebody. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for me. Which goes back to what you were saying about um, the responsibility and the relationships and things like that. And how you deprive people of it when you take away their fertility and things like that. If I didn't have those kids to take care of, I don't know that I would be here. So, yeah, it, it all resonates with me. And that's why I'm like, so like determined to do what I can to get through this whole mess that everybody's in right now. I don't, I don't want this encouraged. I don't want anybody to feel that kind of rejection. I don't want anybody to feel that, that depression and, and, And those awful things, especially about something as personal and profound as your body, like you're always connected to your body. It's never going to not be that way. Like until we get some kind of technology or something where we can download our brains, whatever, even then it's still like not really you, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, like you're connected to your body and everything your body goes through and and. So, to reject it, it's so toxic to everything. It's foundational. Yeah.
1: Well, it's so clear to me and to anyone who's paying attention, yeah, that your motives are pure. Um, that you're coming from a place of compassion and wisdom, good heart, good mind. And you know, our critics, of course, will interpret the things that we do uncharitably. They will oh, yeah. um, interpret this as hatred. That's the number one uh, word that's used in negative reviews of my podcast, yeah. by the way, is I'm accused of hate. Which, by the way, if you're <laughs> listening and you haven't left a review of my podcast, please head on over to Apple and <laughs> <Spotify. laughs> But, um, you know, they will accuse yeah. us of hatred, but mm-hmm. it's clear that what we're saying is that people deserve better. That That yeah. this idea that because you have this thing that we're calling gender dysphoria, that that means that you have to be on this medical path for life. It doesn't. There are non-invasive solutions. And I I just don't understand. I don't know when or how the consensus, or at least the apparent consensus in important fields like mine, um, shifted so rapidly to you know, yeah. not preferring the least invasive treatments. So, you know, our critics will accuse us of promoting so-called conversion therapy by promoting the mm-hmm. idea that there are non-invasive measures people can take to feel at peace with the bodies that they have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thank you for sharing your story. And I, I hope that this can be inspiring and clarifying and educational for people who are looking for help. There are there are so many approaches yeah. to helping ourselves and helping other people.
2: Yeah, and it, it can take years to really unpack childhood trauma for anybody. And so, you know, that needs to be able to have a space. Like you need to be able to unpack all of that trauma to be able to figure out root causes that aren't just, as you said, like a symptom, like just the disorder because there's nothing to attach it to. Like there's gender dysphoria is so like amorphous and it's so unique in, in its presentation in the different people. So to just have it be like, oh, it's just that. And then not look into what could have caused it. What might have
0: been a triggering event? Yeah, it, it's not seeing yeah. that person as an individual at all. It's just reducing them down to whatever diagnosis you think they have, and not actually treating the specific yeah like intri- intricacies of their of their experiences of their childhood of whatever comorbidities they have and yeah. what and what they're experiencing. And that's why it's important to have multiple ther- therapy options for people because, like for Cynthia. Phototherapy, a very alternative therapy, really worked a lot. But for others, it might not. Yeah. For other therapies might work better. It just depends on the person as well. And that's an important thing to consider. Where, Whereas this ideology just pushes people onto one path. And a very dangerous path compared to the mm-hmm. actual therapies. So, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, let's bring it back home. you created this pamphlet. And uh, I asked you what's in the pamphlet, but one thing I haven't asked you yet is: what are your goals for this pamphlet? Who do you want this to reach? How do you want it to be used?
0: So we have so far. First of all, we've for in two weeks we, ra- we raised three thousand dollars thanks to like our followers on Twitter, and we are receiving twenty thousand professional prints of these pamphlets this week. Yeah, and we've already gotten over. 1500 a total of 1500 orders or 1500 pamphlets across like many different people across the US and Canada and mm-hmm. even across the world and so we will be distributing them to one anybody who's interested in receiving a portion to distribute themselves and we'll also be sending them to uh, parent teacher associations school boards yeah. um anybody or any group who would really benefit from these pamphlets. So we're just trying to reach a broad audience. Well, the average
2: person doesn't have time to research all of this stuff. They're just hearing, you know, what was on Dr. Phil or what, you know, the the news about these uh, bans on trans kids in sports, and they're not getting any context and they don't have time to look into it all online or look up all the sources, or anything. So this is meant to be something that you can get into people's hands, that they can look at, they can scan the code, they can go watch videos, what have you. And it, it's just, it's a, a, a very condensed introduction into the myths that are being circulated about this. And we, we want to do other ones about other myths. Uh, the next one that we have planned is debunking the whole sex spectrum Argument because that's done so much damage to people who have DSDs or intersex conditions. Or even
0: people or, with gender dysphoria or, yeah, who even, yeah. reinforces that belief that, oh, I'm ac- I might not actually be this sex. I might be on the yeah. spectrum somewhere, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. This,
2: you know, weird one that, that's going around. We just debunked a, a video. <laughs> we spent four hours debunking this video about how you could be any sex, you really have no idea until, you know, you get all these scans and everything else. And even then that can change at any time, <laughs> like, which is so damaging because as I said in the video, one of the things that I, that, that fixated on was believing that I had to have some kind of internal male organ somewhere. Like maybe I had Uh, a prostate instead of like the skein's glands maybe I had like some kind of like internal testes or something that were hidden like it 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 really was like that kind of a thing where I was trying so hard to find like a, a physical reason for me to have the gender dysphoria and it no like it's just psychological and so yeah, it's it's just going into debunking that kind of thing for multiple reasons, multiple groups.
0: Yeah, the the amount the response has been incredible. We've gotten so many responses from all types of people and all types of just work environments, or or people who are parents, yeah. people who work in medical centers, even people who mom, are professors, pastors. Yeah, even even her mom, who's who- a
2: big who was a big tra, like I am jazz fan, everything else, like.
0: So she she, she responded yeah. to the pamphlet in a way where she was before she she really believed in uh the transition path, especially for people like like Jazz Jennings, for example.
2: Yeah. Childhood transition is yeah. a big one for
0: her. And then when she we gave her the pamphlet and her response was actually really positive, where she said that she basically started to understand more of what we were talking about and what we were telling her before. Yeah. And that it helped to have it in this visual form that was really condensed and things started to make more sense.
2: It helped her realize, like, think more critically about the argument for trans kids and that it really is based on stereotypes. Um, Because jazz, the whole thing with the, oh, because he wanted to wear a bathing suit when he's three. And so now that means that he's really a girl. And I looked it up in the DSM, which really suspicious that his mother would have a DSM to look through before speaking to a therapist, but that's <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> the weird. thing. And what are your goals more broadly
1: with the Paradox Institute?
0: So we want to be continuing to create animated videos on sex differences and helping educate the public and helping people articulate the differences between males and females and articulate why they're important. And then we also want to continue creating our and writing our educational articles on sex and gender topics. Yeah, We also want to continue to create more pamphlets like we talked about. And And I'm currently working on a third book specifically debunking the sex spectrum idea. And that will be on the paradox Institute Mm -hmm. website and published this year. Um, We're
2: also going to be releasing a menstrual cycle series to help people understand the menstrual cycle better.
0: Yep. An animated series. So you'll, You'll have all these visuals that walk you through the stages of the menstrual cycle and how the hormonal cycle interacts. So how the yeah. hormones then go from the pituitary gland to the ovaries and how they impact the uterus yeah. and how it's this feedback loop. Now, all the different hormones like estrogen and progesterone and FSH and LH, how they impact the cycle, yeah. and how they impact your even psychology and, yeah. and even the benefits of the menstrual cycle yes. on your endocrine health and your health of your physiology, your skin, your hair, uh, bones, and all these different things that people overlook when they think of the menstrual cycle.
2: So basically just more awareness and education and through that body positivity, because we we're told so often as women, your period's just, you know, it's just an inconvenience. You don't actually need it for any reason. And it's just horrible. Doesn't it suck to be a girl? And it's like, that is such harmful messaging to put out there. And even the medical field, like they will prescribe you birth control to take your period away if you have, you know, acne or whatever. Like, so yeah, just more education and awareness. And
0: yeah, we want to eventually get into the impacts of birth of the birth control pill on the female endocrine cycle and how that impacts different body systems. Mm -hmm. That's something that's overlooked as well. So that's really important. Yeah.
1: That's really great. So where can people find all of your various resources?
0: So they can go to theparadoxinstitute.com, and you can see that there's a watch page, then a read page, and a print page, and listen page, and all the different types of media (laughs) organized into those different sections. So it's pretty easy to navigate and pretty straightforward. So that's where you can find everything.
1: And they order pamphlets there?
0: So on the print page, they can click on on the pamphlet page, and then they can contact us. To order pamphlets for distribution, so we can yeah. uh, provide them with a portion of the twenty thousand. Uh, they can also buy a batch of their own that we can uh, link them to. So, yeah, they can just go there and there's a contact page.
1: Mm-hmm. That's great. And uh, your podcast—tell us all the places to find your podcast, and then social media and stuff.
0: Yeah. So the podcast we've uploaded a long form interviews with a neuroscience student we've also uploaded audio essays of our articles so narrating our articles and that can be found that can be found at the paradox institute podcast like on spotify or even uh youtube is where we upload some other audio content that's just paradox institute Mm -hmm. on youtube and everywhere else you can really get your podcast we're working on getting it onto onto itunes Mm -hmm. right now as well so
1: And do you want people to follow you on Twitter
2: or Instagram? Yeah, so
0: you can follow us, uh, me at Z-A-E-Lefty, L-E-F-T-Y, and then...
2: And then P-T-Elephant, so P like Peter, T like Timothy, and then the word elephant. And doesn't Paradox Institute, like at PDX Institute,
1: which is confusing, Mm, by the way,
2: for us Portlanders, because
1: PDX is also our abbreviation.
0: (laughs) That's right. I tried to get a tag for uh, just Paradox Institute, but it was taken. (laughs) I was like, "What?" (laughs) So uh, yeah, I had to do PDX, and I actually got that comment from another person from Portland.
1: (laughs) (laughs) People all got used to it quickly enough. Well, (laughs) guys, it's it's been a pleasure. I feel like this our conversation today hit a lot of needs for me, um, and I hope that our listeners feel as enthralled as I do because you know are coming as a couple it's actually my first time interviewing a couple um and you've got this sweet love story we got some of Cynthia's <laughs> trauma history in there we also got debunking the myths of gender affirming care and your activism and advocacy um so I feel like it was a really well-rounded and satisfying conversation I'm really grateful for it um you're an inspiring young couple courageous and and bold with good hearts And I really wish you all the best and hope that some of our listeners uh, check out your stuff. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Nguyen LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.